Okay, continuing with the second part of this presentation on skin, let's describe the types of hair. There are the following types. Villus, which is a fine hair, is usually found in some parts of our body and especially in children. Uh, the terminal hair is a typical we find in the, on the scalp and the eyebrows. Now, there are many things that affect the, the growth of the hair. Nutrition is one of them. Hormones is another one. And if there is deficiency of proteins, like in malnutrition, well, you can understand the keratin will not be produced effectively. And there are many factors that may affect the growth of the hair. The hair will grow weaker, and there may be even uh, areas of loss of hair sometimes, uh, related with vitamins sometimes, uh, or deficiency of some minerals. Uh, many things in nutrition may affect in some people the, the growth of the hair. The loss of hair is seen as, described as baldness. Alopecia is a problem that is described as hair thinning. And the hair thinning starts usually in everyone as part of the aging process, but determined by genetics, some people will have, uh, will start having baldness, will lose hair in the scalp. Again, this is genetically determined. There are some other people that won't lose hair, but instead it will turn gray. And Especially the male pattern in baldness is determined by hormones, the DHT known as dehydrotestosterone. But again, it's the response of the hair follicle to this hormone which is the difference. Because this hormone decreases as long as we age, but the sensitivity to this hormone is the one that determines the male pattern uh, baldness. So as we said before, the hair growth is affected by nutritional things, by hormone, hormonal factors um, also important in this. Is it true that they say like um, stress can create, you know how people say, oh, if you're stressed out, your hair can fall out? Yes, it happens. It is seen, but it's not like because of lack of nutrition, when there's nutritional and hormonal problems, what we see is loss of hair in a diffuse way, so all over. Uh, alopecia that is in response to stress, which is something that is real, is usually like in patches, in small patches, and in, uh, in some areas of the skull. And uh, yes, it's something that is recognized, but there's no nutritional or hormonal uh, background in that. Yeah, it has a different name. It's called alopecia areata. There's a specific name to to recognize that because that means it's in patches. In patches, different than the the other type. Another component of the skin are the nails, and the nails are also keratin. Keratin is a little different. It's hard keratin. Protection and the dorsal surface of fingers and toes. Additional to protection, the nails are important for the grabbing or gripping ability. Uh, thanks to them is that we can press on objects like the pen when we write. 
and have the sense of what we are touching or grabbing. Imagine if we didn't have nails, it all would be like fluffy, we would not be able to recognize how uh, thick or tough some objects are. So it's not only for protection, it's also for the gripping or uh, grabbing ability. Uh, there are parts of the nail that we will describe in the uh, diagram that comes after. But what we see usually is the nail bed through the transparent uh, feature of the nail. And that looks pink because of the presence of all the blood vessels. If you press against your nail, you press it, it will turn pale. You let it go and it returns to pink. And that is called capillary filling. And it's actually something that we assess in someone that has dehydration, loss of fluids, or low blood pressure. You do this, you will see that the capillary filling is lower. Let's see this part in the diagram. So this is the aspect of the nail. There's a free edge, the one that you, we, we usually cut off and, uh, and cut to um, different degrees. There are nail folds, lateral nail folds. This little membrane that we see in the limit between the skin and the nail is called the cuticle or eponychium. It's a little membrane, transparent membrane that is holding the skin against the nail. There is a white line here or white area which is called the lunule. It is just part of the bed, nail bed that we have here in this longitudinal section. We see the body of the nail and underneath we have the nail bed. All this is the nail bed and we see blood vessels under it. So all that nail bed is covered by epidermis, epithelium. Now, if you remove the nail, you will remove the nail with a layer of epidermis and you will have all the dermis exposed and it will bleed actually, it bleeds when we remove the nail. We remove the nail for different purposes, sometimes injuries, traumatic removal, or severe infections. Sometimes the nail has to be completely removed and uh, it, it end up with a surface which is uh, it's bleeding because it's just the dermis which is exposed. But it will regrow epidermis will regrow and the nail will regrow starting from the nail matrix. The nail matrix which is under this folding of skin. The nail matrix is deep here and that's where the nail starts growing. If that area is damaged, no more nail will grow. And, or if that part of the skin is damaged, not completely, then the nail will grow with some problem, which may be an incomplete nail, or some nails that grow with lines or ridges because the matrix has been damaged and the production is not uh, as usual. Well, that's all about the nails. Uh, besides the nails are another place which uh, has different changes in response to diseases. Uh, chronic lack of oxygen and some people make the shape of the nails change. That's someone with 
uh, lung problem for 20, 30 years, they would have some deformation of the fingers and the fingernails. The nail turns brown. There are many different things on the nails. One of the things is um, it's genetically determined. Some people have these nails getting darker with the age. That's one thing. Another thing is that the uh, fungal infections, fungal infections are very common on the skin. And that's another reason why it turns, uh, it changes in color, it starts getting like flaky and uh, turns yellow. Uh, nails are the very subject to a lot of fungal infections uh, usually especially the, the, the toenails. Okay, moving to the glands now. Sweat glands. The sweat glands, also known as sudoriferous glands, they produce the sweat. They are everywhere except in some areas like the nipples and external genitals. There are two types of sweat glands, ecrine or metocrine and apocrine. We'll see the difference in, uh, in a different slide. Myoepithelial cells, what are the myoepithelial cells? The prefix myo comes from muscle. And what these cells are, they're specialized cells that will contract and they are around they're around the glands and it will actually squeeze and it will send the secretion to the duct and help for the release of the sweat. Especially when we are nervous and we sweat is because of the contraction of these myoepithelial cells and the sweat comes through uh, the ducts to the outside. The first type, ecrine or merocrine, they are the most, they are the most. And they are the ones on the palms, soles, forehead. They contain ducts, function, regulation of body temperature, called thermoregulation. And that is achieved by means of the nervous system, specifically the sympathetic nervous system. Sweat. They produce sweat which is composed mainly of water, but it also has components like salt, metabolic wastes, some antibodies, and substances that will be against, against microbes or germs. They actually um, destroy bacteria or, or, or microbes. But mostly, the components is water. It's, well, 99% water. This is how we see the sweat glands under the microscope. We see this diagram where they show us that the, uh, this sweat gland, ecrine gland, is located in the dermis. And it's like a long tube that is all coiled connected to a duct, and this duct leads to a pore on the epidermis. Under a transverse section, and this is one of, the, one of the examples where we have to keep this 3D aspect or figure in our minds, we will see just transverse sections of this 
tubular glands and you can see the groups of cells with the secretory cells the ones that are producing the the sweat and imagine that tubule all coiled and you cut it in a transverse way we just see cross sections cross sections and some of them they are uh, dark cells like this group and those are the ducts so we see cuboidal cells cuboidal cells and the dermis so you see this lies these formations those are the uh, sweat glands sometimes we see the long duct going up to the uh, to the skin or to the epidermis but not always the apocrine the apocrine glands yes you have a question Oh, ecrine, ecrine. The apocrine sweat glands, they are located only in determined places, the axilla and the anogenital areas, in the skin of the genital areas. The secretion is different. The sweat glands, the ecrine glands, they produce a secretion that is watery. This, this type of cell or glands, they, the secretion is thicker. It's sometimes milky, yellowish. And it has a different composition. It contains more fatty substances, some proteins. And these are the secretions that bacteria like a lot. That explains the easy contamination by bacteria of the area of the axilla that produces this type of sweat. And that gives a typical odor that is uh, found in these areas of the body. They usually develop starting at puberty. And uh, kids usually don't have to use deodorant. As long as they grow up and they get to adolescence, there's a point at which Mom starts saying, use the deodorant because you cannot stand that. Because they start producing or functioning at puberty, under hormonal control, under hormonal control. Worth mentioning that these two types of glands, the ceraminous glands located in the ear canal that produce wax, and the mammary glands are actually sweat glands that have been modified during the development. They are apocrine glands. Some of them in the external ear, they specialize in production of earwax, and uh, some of them under the hormonal control uh, get specialized in the production of milk, the mammary glands. Sebaceous glands also known as oil glands. These are also everywhere except thick skin of palms and soles. They are associated to hair follicles. In the slides, if you want to look for sebaceous glands, oil glands, you have to look for a hair follicle. 
and always right next to the hair follicle you will find a, a, a sebaceous glands uh, a gland or oil gland again they are active starting at puberty under hormonal control and the secretion is called sebum or just oil is that secretion that we have on our skin that is actually good because it keeps our skin hydrated protected against the injuries of the environment makes the hair soft and the skin also soft but sometimes some people produce excessive amount of this sebum or oil and it gives certain problems especially because of bacterial contamination and tend to have more risk of skin infections uh, this is what happens at puberty in adolescence when the sebaceous glands start working producing the sebum and the bacteria contaminate and we have this problem called acne because of contamination infection of sebaceous glands commonly known blackheads whiteheads are infected sebaceous glands so in the diagram here we see the sebaceous gland right next to a hair follicle sebaceous gland is right next to a hair follicle and under the microscope you see the hair in the hair follicle so the hair follicle is all this it will be kind of like this and the sebaceous gland is associated right next to the hair follicle and the duct connects to the hair follicle actually the sebaceous gland releases the product to the hair follicle and the oil comes around the hair to the outside if you see the cells here they look like bubbles clear bubbles and that's how we recognize it under the microscope look for these cells with aspect of bubbles and uh, this is a type of holocrine gland last time we described holocrine glands are uh, the cells they, they, they break and release pieces of cytoplasm containing the sebum in this case okay next part is some words about the functions of the skin here we have up to six functions to mention uh, important about the skin first the skin is seen as a barrier it's obvious it's a barrier covering all our body protection but then other functions like body temperature regulation sensations metabolic functions there are metabolic functions the skin important blood reservoir and excretion of wastes metabolic functions are related to the production of vitamin D we'll, give, we'll, we'll, we'll say some words about that so let's see some things some aspects about each of these functions starting with protection
Now we're talking about the skin and in dermis, I forgot to mention about tattoos. Um, tattoos are injected, or this, the, 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 the ink is injected into the dermis. It's not injected to the epidermis. Because if it's injected to the epidermis, what's going to happen? They will disappear after 30 days, you won't have tattoo. That's what happens with this special type of tattoo, temporary tattoos called henna, which stains the epidermis, actually the stratum corneum. But then it, after seven days or 15 days, you see that it fades. But at the two, the ink goes deep enough to the dermis. And what happens to the ink in the dermis is that it will remain there because macrophages that we mentioned, cells of the immune system, come around, detect that as a presence of a foreign substance, eat that ink, and they remain there. They die and they remain there. And we see the different color of the ink through the layers of the skin, through the epidermis. And depending how deep it goes, it, um, it gives different tones of the color. So it's, it's all a it's all uh, details, interesting details about this, like the length of the needle, how deep it goes, the different colors, and different areas of the skin. That's all the um, discipline about this. Okay, so we are in the function of the skin and protection barrier. Chemical, physical, biological barrier. Very obvious and uh, well understood function of the skin. Chemicals, many different chemicals um, can injure the skin and the skin protects against those injuries. pH of the skin is low enough to delay the growth of bacteria. It's one of the things. The sweat contains antimicrobial substances. The sebum kill bacteria. Physical barrier, stratum corneum, we saw that is a thicker layer, outside layer, and so surrounded by chemicals, glycolipids, well, that provides an excellent physical barrier. And biological dendritic cells, macrophages in the epidermis are protecting against invasion of microorganisms and the presence of macrophages in the dermis, which will detect any foreign substance, microorganisms, and uh, destroy. So it's an excellent barrier under chemical or against chemical, physical, and biological uh, injuries. Body temperature, it's basically through the sweat glands. Through the sweat glands. The sweat glands produce amazing amount of sweat, like half a liter per day that we don't even notice. That's called insensible perspiration because as soon as the sweat is produced, it will be evaporated. We don't even notice and say, I haven't sweat anything today, but you have sweat like half a liter during 24 hours. Now, if the temperature of the body is higher than we will produce 
much more. Up to 12 liters of noticeable sweat. And that's a lot. That's why the importance of hydration when well, we perform sports. Because that fluid, where it comes from, it comes from our body, it comes from the blood. And uh, we may be in trouble because of excessive sweat. We get dehydrated. And many people go to the emergency room with dehydration, extreme dehydration, because of running under the sun at noon in a summer day. So that's called sensible perspiration. We notice about that. Very important function. It helps to cool the body. And during uh, cold temperatures, well, the dermal blood vessels constrict and the skin temperature will change and keep in the heat inside our, uh, our body. Sensations. We mentioned the miracle cells, different type of nerve endings. That's the part that the skin is in contact with the environment. We are supposed to detect any changes or injuries that may happen. Those are called exteroceptors because they detect sensations from the outside. There are receptors for touch, temperature, and um, vibration, pressure. We'll see more of that when we get to the nervous system. Metabolic functions. Vitamin D. Vitamin D. The skin produces vitamin D. What is the vitamin D good for? For absorption of calcium in the intestine. And the calcium is good for bones. How the skin produces vitamin D? Exposure to sunlight, ultraviolet radiation, activates the mechanisms for production of vitamin D. The skin cells contain this chemical pre uh, molecule for vitamin D. Under the sunlight, it gets activated and we produce vitamin D. And that vitamin D enhances absorption of calcium. So it's very important, especially for newborns and small kids, to um, be exposed to the sunlight so the vitamin D production can be activated. Keratinocytes produce chemicals that protect against carcinogens, which are chemicals of different types that can produce cancer. Or, this enzyme called collagenase, which breaks down the collagen and uh, increases the turnover of collagen. Collagen fiber is decreased in amount when we have wrinkles. So wrinkles are just weakening of the dermis. Collagen fibers getting less amount because of nutrition, aging process, and we start getting wrinkles. So the skin makes this enzyme that helps against the prevention of wrinkles. Blood reservoir. Blood reservoir is um, the function of the skin as blood reservoir is in relation to how much blood how much blood can be found in the blood vessels of the skin? And up to 5% of the body total blood volume, what is the 
amount of blood that we have in our body, about five liters. 5% will be like so five liters, you get 50, 100, 200 milliliters of blood in the blood vessels of the skin. What it means? It means like when we need additional blood or extra blood, we take it from the blood vessels of our skin. Like if we bleed, we are in an accident, we bleed excessively, our kidneys, heart, brain need more blood, well, we get more blood. Temporarily, we get blood from the skin blood vessels, and that's how we turn pale. We turn pale when we are losing blood because the blood is being diverted from the skin blood vessels to important organs. Or we exercise. Sometimes we exercise and you're so pale after running a lot because all the blood is going to your muscles. And excretion. As part of the production of sweat, we mentioned that the composition of the sweat is salt. Excretion wastes like urea, ammonia, uric acid, which are substances that are supposed to be eliminated by the kidney, but it can also be excreted by, by the sweat glands, and that's an important function of the skin. Some words about skin cancer. Cancer is a, a, a disease which is considered uh, the uncontrolled growth of cells. And we have these words, benign and malignant, to name this type of growth. Commonly called tumors. We commonly call these uh, abnormal growth tumors. But the tumors may be benign or may be malignant. Benign, we call them because they do not spread. The spreading of the tumor cells is called metastasis. Or we say metastasize. They do not spread, do not metastasize. In the case of the skin, there are tumors which may be benign, and some tumors may be malignant. A mole that many people have is considered a benign tumor. Because we have it for a lifetime and never gives problem. Usually moles are dark, pigmented things that are very round, regular, and never give us trouble. That's a benign tumor. But sometimes some of these things, moles, may be malignant. And there are some factors, like we mentioned overexposure to sunlight, which is the same as saying ultraviolet, ultraviolet radiation. Or frequent irritation of the skin. There are some people that develop different types of cancer because of contact, chronic exposure, chronic, uh, chronic contact with chemicals. The chemicals irritate the skin and after some years they develop cancer. Now there are different products that may help to repair the damaged DNA, but not to the point to fix cancer but it's good for prevention, maybe good for prevention. There are three major types of cancer. Basal cell, squamous cell, and melanoma, also called malignant melanoma, or MM, malignant melanoma. Well, the description of, this, uh, of these names, they tell us about the, the problem. Basal cell carcinoma, 
it's a cancer developing from the basal layer of the epidermis. Squamous cell carcinoma, it's a cancer developing from the keratinocytes, or the stratum spinosum, squamous cell, flat cells. The basal cell is the least malignant, and most common, by the way. Stratum basal cells. They grow and invade the dermis. These are usually things that are located in areas exposed to the sunlight, like we see here, uh, the skin of the nose, sometimes the skin of the ear. Uh, they are recognized as lesions or pigmented lesions that starts growing quickly. You never had it, but all of a sudden you notice you have something there. Well, surgery removes this and the treatment is complete because there's not much invasion. It's local invasion of the derms. So that's the least malignant type. Squamous cell, keratinocytes of the stratum spinosum. They are medially malignant, we can say, because they can spread or metastasize to other areas, other organs. It's usually in the scalp, ears, lower lip, or even in the hand. Surgery, radiation sometimes, they cure the lesion. In all these lesions, the common thing is that, as I said, if you notice something growing on your skin, anything that you didn't have before and appears all of a sudden, and in three months it starts growing, that's something that may be uh, malignant. And for melanoma, which is a cancer that develops from the melanocytes, that's why the name, is a pigmented lesion as we see there. Highly metastatic and unfortunately many times resistant to chemotherapy. So it's very important to detect this very early, very, very early. So always after this class, some students come up and, and ask about some mold that they have in their bodies that they never noticed before, and they say maybe a cancer, maybe a melanoma. And I say, well, you better keep a good inventory of your molds, and time to time and notice there are some parts of the body that is hard to see, like the skin of the back, you notice, unless someone else notices. But, uh, yeah, sometimes it sounds a little funny, but it may be important. There was this time, some years ago, that this student came up and say, uh, and talked to me and said, I had this mole and uh, I, I didn't have it last month. Okay, that's a sign that okay, that's something new, but it was a small thing, like the, I would say, three millimeters probably, diameter. And well, the recommendation in this case is, is to get a biopsy. This is something you never had before. And, uh, and she had that lesion seen by her doctor and it referred to the dermatologist. And I found out after months after that I met the student again. Uh, and they made a biopsy and they removed actually the, the whole mole, the whole thing. And when they said to, to pathology and the biopsy results came back, it was a melanoma. It was a malignant melanoma. And I said, wow, well, that was the thing. I mean, there's a mole, even though it's small, but you never had it before, and it started growing quickly. And it's better, it's better to get a biopsy result that says, oh, it's just a mole, nothing malignant, than leave it there, and after a year, you say that it's a, 
uh, it may be too late. So there are some rules for this, like the ABCD rule that stands for asymmetry, border, color, diameter, that will make a quick assessment of the nature of the, of the mole or lesion. But always, I mean, if any of these signs are present or you suspect or something, it's a good thing to go and uh, make it seen, have it seen by, the, by, by specialists and they will give you their, their opinion or diagnosis or whatever steps that are necessary to follow. Okay, Burns is very simple, it's just um, the definition or classification in three types according to the depth of lesion. Uh, and the number of layers involved. Problem about burns is that the destruction actually is breaking the barrier, the natural barrier. And if we don't have a barrier, we lose fluids, dehydration, and we become more uh, susceptible of infections. And those are the complications of burns, infection and dehydration. In the emergency on the specialized centers, they use what they call the rule of nines to assess the severity of a burn. And they assign different percentages to the area of the skin, the different areas or surface of the skin, as we see here. You don't have to remember this for the exam. It's just a reference of the different percentages for each of the, of the body areas. And depending on if someone has, let's say, one upper limb compromised, we say that person has 4% or 4.5% of the body surface area compromised. Or they have both lower limbs burned, 18%. And according to that, we determine the percentage and we classify that according to the, here, the, sev the severity of the, of the burn. If it's more than 10%, it's considered critical if they are third degree burns. If it's more than 25%, if they are second degree, that's considered a critical burn. What means critical? It means it may threaten the life of the person. It's very serious. It is very serious. And the classification goes in degrees. First degree, second degree, and third degree. First degree, just epidermis. What we see is usually redness. Typical example, sunburn. Second degree, epidermis and dermis. But usually papillary layer of the dermis. Blisters is a characteristic, the, the presence of blisters. The presence of blisters. And third degree, it compromises all layers, epidermis, dermis, and hypodermis. And sometimes deeper, up to the muscles or even to the bone. Now, as I said, not necessarily is considered a critical burn unless it's a extensive area of the surface, at least 10% of the body area, someone has both upper limbs, third degree, that's considered critical, for instance. And those are the treatments for different types of burns. It depends on what type of burn you have. 
it just be treated with antibiotics or surgery, surgical clinic, uh, cleaning or uh, even skin grafts.